As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. And when I say today, I am super excited for this conversation. Our guest today is someone I consider one of my favorite thinkers, one of my favorite thinkers, a mentor to me, actually. Welcome for the first time to The Malcolm Effect, Professor Zaveru Why? How are you? I am good. Thank you for, 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 for saying that. But you are good people. So I am like, this is a conversation that I'm looking forward to. And, and of course... You are doing fantastic and with with the podcast and 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 I'm excited to be here. I am fine. I'm doing well. Thank you. It's great to hear. So we're going to be speaking about one of my favorite topics, and that is the continent of Africa. And I believe Christian will open with the first question. Yes. Yeah, so we want to talk about Africa, especially from an international relations perspective. And I think one of the real problems of the day is the relationship between Africa and China. And so, you know, Rex Tillerson, former Secretary of State for Donald Trump and former CEO of ExxonMobil, has charged China with using predatory loan practices. Hillary Clinton, former Secretary of State, has referred to China's involvement in Africa as a new colonialism. And the term (laughs) debt trap diplomacy has been Mm -hmm. coined in order to describe what has often been perceived as a parasitic relationship between the continent and China. So what do you think about the comments made by our beloved American war criminals? And uh, how would you address the term debt trap diplomacy? I mean, it's it's really laughable. (laughs) I mean, Hillary Clinton, if you remember, again, before I even touch on this, you remember when Libya was destroyed and Gaddafi was like, like brutally murdered, sodomized with bayonets under heavy, like basically he was going in a, in a convoy and NATO bombed his convoy. And then he was captured by um, NATO funded insurgents who sodomized him with bayonets and stuff. What did Hillary Clinton say? We came, we saw, he died and she was laughing. Mm-hmm. And this is the person that we are going to take seriously when it comes to Africa. Like really? The person that destroyed whatever Gaddafi's scene may have been. Libya, under him, was one of the most stable countries in Africa, and it was one of the most prosperous countries in Africa. But apart from that, Libya was also actually spearheading an African infrastructure program that they had invested over $200 billion in. So what? And then you destroy that country, and now you want to tell us about Chinese loans in Africa? Like, seriously? One thing that, I mean, I was having this conversation with a very close friend of mine around this, right? And I have been looking at the debt figures, the loan, African, sorry, the loans, the the total loans in Africa. China actually pales into insignificance when you compare the the level of loans. Western loans or multilateral loans are actually larger than Chinese loans in Africa. That's one. But secondly, the structural foundation of Chinese loans are completely different from that of Western loans. So most of the time, if you take, like, for instance, the Eurobond market or Cargill and all of these, uh, mul- these um, multinational corporations that are investing in Africa, you are actually talking about short-term loans. So they will tell you, we are going to fund, like, maybe the wage bill or fund the welfare bill in the short term. But most of the loans that they are giving are short-term loans as well, which is predicated on draining interest and draining in, um, resources from the continent. The Chinese loans based on a different structure in terms of investment in infrastructure. So I'll give you an example. I have friends who work at the African Union, and my friend Bikram Gill, who is a professor of Virginia Tech, as a graduate student was in, in, in Ethiopia doing um, field work for his work, and I send him to some of my friends who work at the African Union. And what was the talk at the African Union? The Chinese, they were repeating this to him, that the Chinese were saying, what you really need to do 
is invest in infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. And all of the loans that actually China puts into Africa, it's not draining surplus. There are, and I'm not saying that China is like Santa Claus that gives you um, all of these resources and, and, and loans for free. They have their own economic interests. But around the same time that I was, I'm referring to what they are talking about infrastructure, the Chinese premier was addressing the African Union. And what he said was, we understand that Africa is the continent that has this history of people coming to take something from them. We also have that history. But we also know that our development is contingent on yours and your development is contingent on us. We have to form an alliance in which we give you what we have and you could give us the things that we also want in, in a South-South cooperation, in a fair exchange, fair dealing. And finally, I'll end on this, right? So when you're talking about debt trap, debt trap um, diplomacy, everybody that has studied this situation in terms of Chinese law, and I'll give you an example. Deborah Bottigam um, is a professor at the, uh, of international political economy at John Hopkins University. Advanced School of Advanced International Relations, and she's the director of the China Research Initiative, right? When everybody was talking about loan, her study, when she actually looked into this study, when they took into consideration, like did research, they actually realized that it is hogwash. This idea, it's actually what you might want to call a particular form of like moral or virtue signaling. Well, in actual fact, you want to get Africa, run Africa, sorry, China out of the continent, whilst the Western um, governments, and, and don't forget, the IMF and the World Bank, who, is re- who really stands behind them, is the Western governments and Western economies. And so they want to displace China and continue their predatory form of, 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 of investment and, and resource drainage from Africa. And here is the point, right? In West Africa, we have this proverb that says, because the farm owner, is slow to, to call to name the thief. The theme calls the farm owner thief. And so what we, what is really happening is that whatever the West is doing to Africa is what they are accusing China of doing. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely spot on. And I think that's an excellent analysis. And I guess I have uh, two follow-ups. One is that when I was, uh, when I was re- researching some of the literature, around this topic and some of the stuff I've read in the past. There's talk about, you know, debt trap diplomacy and debunking debt trap diplomacy, but is there still a concern about a possible dependence on Chinese loans in order for economic growth in the continent? But why um, are we having this conversation? And that is the point. Right. Why, why are we even having this conversation? People forget. You guys may be younger, so you may not remember. But I went to school at a period when structural adjustment was imposed on our our countries. Mm -hmm. We have two and a half decades in Africa, which are lost decades. It's not because we were fighting wars. I mean, those wars were also, as a result, they would normally tell you it's authoritarian and and all of this. But it was really as a result of the structural economic crises that had developed in African um, societies. And the IMF and the World Bank came to restructure African societies, restructure in the Vatican commerce, in which they basically told them, you have to stop doing all of, like impose the worst form of austerity measures on African societies. What what are people talking about exactly? (laughs) So during that period from, let's say, the mid-80s to up to, let's say, 2004, check the economic figures. It was wars, endless wars, and then it got represented as if, oh, the West is coming to solve the problem, when in actual fact, at the root of the crisis that are developed in African economies was precisely because of the predatory loaning and the, the very, very violent uh, form of austerity measures that are being imposed on African countries. That is one. The second thing, and I'm not even going to go to the analysis of colonialism and imperialism. Let's forget about that. Let's just take the last 30 years. Let's take, okay, the last 40 years from the mid-1980s during the, de- the so-called debt crisis. And SAPs were imposed on African societies. And then... Look at the figures in terms of resource drain from Africa during this period. Whilst the societies were going through serious economic crises, look at the interest payments to Western loans during this period. People think that like all of us are just going to forget like all of a sudden. 
Like this did not happen. I was in school, middle school, when structural adjustment came to Sierra Leone. From 85 to 92, there was a civil war in the country. Why? Because things had gotten so bad, we didn't even have like, like the basic, what do you mind, the basic staples, like rice. You had to, to, to stand in long queues in order to be able to get rice. Meanwhile, the, the resources in the societies were drained off. So for over 20 years, and guess what happened? In the 2000s, like say, say 2013, we started talking about African rising. You know what happened during this period? Look at the figures. I, I was just looking at the figures before, before um, this podcast. China entered the scene. And actually, if you go to 2016, the highest investment in Africa in terms of like loans, infrastructure loans, was actually China. And just so remember, between 2011 and 2013, when we started talking about Africa rising, what had happened? China had come into Africa in terms of investment and had changed the entire picture. And so what has been happening really is like the Western uh, um, countries that are used to draining resources from the country, looking at China, undercutting them in a way, like changing the dynamics of the relationship. So what kind of dependence are we talking about exactly? We are dependent on the West. Our economies were produced that way. China is allowing us or if, again, I'm not in any way saying that China is like the Santa Claus. They have their own interests, but it is up to African governments to be able to read that situation and bring it, because China is not, China is very upfront. This is what we want. This is what we could provide. Take Zambia, the economic crisis that happened in Zambia. It's not because of Chinese loans. It's actually because of the Euro bond market. Zambia, that they were talking about, oh, China is like, it's actually because of the Euro bond markets. And when the IMF came back, to say, okay, you've defaulted on your Euro bond market and we're going to give you loans to offset that. What did they say? Stop the infrastructure pro- projects. Because for them, the infrastructure project is not important. What they want is the wage bill, something in the immediate. But is that really the investment that we need in our societies that will be able to get us structurally transform our societies? No. So they want things to continue that way. The actual dependence is not China. China is trying to transform that, that dependence. And I will end on this. In 2000, I am not sure, like recently, Rope, the re- Review of African Political Economy, the journal, the economic journal, asked me to review a paper. It was a fat- fascinating paper because the previous government in Sierra Leone wanted to invest in telecommunications and expand the telecommunications industry in the country. The IMF and the World Bank said, no, this is not important. Or they came up with very stringent structural and policies austerity measures. And the government was like, well, no, we're not going to do this. Where where did they go? They went to China. And China was able to provide a different um, set of loans on a different set of conditions. The point that I'm making is the entrance of China into the African market, whether in terms of loan, whether in terms of infrastructure development, whether in terms of economic development, resource extraction, whatever it is that you are thinking of has created or is creating a different structural basis within which Africa will be able to engage with the international financial, um, international economy and to restructure their economies and stuff. So the political economy of Africa's insertion in global political economy is changing and has been changed and it is being transformed by the presence of China. I am not saying this. You could say, oh, Zuba is ideologically committed to this. I'm not saying this. People who have studied this, who have nothing to do Like Deborah Buttingham, for instance, at John Hopkins, I was naming her. She has come to the conclusion that actually that whole come of dependence and all of this, it's actually BS. So no, like like this issue of dependence, like why is it that we always have to look at China from the pricing of the West? Why do we constantly have, oh, the West has done this, therefore that's what China is going to do? The structural basis and the structural foundation of Chinese economy and Chinese society and Chinese history is completely different from the West. So no, I, I, I don't think, I don't have any issue with dependence. I'm not thinking of that. Because what China is actually allowing is for these societies to be able to reimagine their economies in a different way. And with the entrance of China, they have created a different opportunity or they are creating at least a different architecture. And if African governments are serious, they will be able to engage with that in a way that will set them up to get out of this whole form of dependence. Yeah, no, thank you for that. 
I think like uh, even this uh, Washington Post article, Washington Post of all uh, media sources article had said of the loans from 2000 to 2015 from China in the continent, 40% were going towards electricity generation and 30% were thank going you. towards infrastructural uh, projects. So thank you again for kind of dispelling those myths. And something that you started to get into was like the more specifically the history around this. So if you wouldn't mind, could you go through historicizing, you know, the relationship between the continent and China through the various leadership on both sides, what it meant for, you know, the different leaders in various African countries through mid 20th century independence movements to even China's so, so, so today. Yes, yes. Okay, so so let's let's do this. I'm now gonna start sounding a little bit less animated. I think I'm okay now. I've got that off my chest. <laughs> but let's, okay, so let's do this. I grew up in Sierra Leone, right? I was born and raised in Sierra Leone. And mm-hmm. in the city that I grew up in, Bo is the second largest um, city in Sierra Leone after Freetown, right? And so growing up in Bo, there was a place that is called Chinatown. What is Chinatown? Chinatown was basically a particular form of state-state cooperation between the Chinese, um, the Chinese state and the Sierra Leonean state. And what was China Farm about? It was about trying to experiment scientifically with the, with the rice, how do you call it now? The type of rice that we grow in Sierra Leone, the, the indigenous rice grain, and they were trying to turn it into high-yield, short-term, harvestable grain. So that's what China was. It was basically a scientific place in which Chinese technical assistance to Sierra Leone. And we are talking about the 70s when China was poor. 70s, well, 80s, because 70s, I was like very, very little. But 80s, China was still poor during this period. And they were like helping us to develop agriculture sector by not only diffusing different forms of techniques in producing like swamp rice production, but also to turn the local low-yield rice, in the, uh, organic rice, into high-yield short terms. Because rice the, in, in this region, like it will take like six months. So you, you plant the rice in the rain season towards the dry season, then you harvest. And the Chinese who are basically experimenting, they were introducing this new type of rice that you plant for three months and it changes. This is in the 70s, 80s. When Guinea became independent, Mamadou, you probably Mamadou, you probably know this, right? Mm-hmm. Ture angered the goal because Guinea refused to to vote for the French community, and Ture was like, "We prefer freedom in poverty than riches in in or opulence in um, slavery in opulence," right? And the French were so how do you say jilted by this that they basically destroyed everything in Guinea. So how did Guinea start as an independent country? Chinese loan and Nkrumah, of course. So Ghanaian loan and Chinese loan. That's how Guinea started. It is there in the books if people just want to read. So the thing is that the relationship, but also when finally China, because after the the Chinese Civil War and the Communist Revolution, when Jiang Kian-shek and others went to Taipei, it was Taiwan that was still recognized as the representative government of China. Can you believe that? It was in the 70s when, what's his name? This, the US president Nixon decided to extricate himself from the Vietnam War and to reset relations with China. It was during this period that China was able to take its rightful place in the UN Security Council. And guess who are the people that brought China into the Security Council? Mao is quoted as saying, our African brothers brought us to the Security Council. Wow. You could look at it. So that relationship has always been there. It, 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 it was a relationship that was forged in terms of the struggle against imperialism. In fact, Mao had his own, right? But at the same time, China was, in the 70s, China was the most equal society. But then Deng had to make the decision, do we want to remain equal in poverty or can we accept a little bit of inequality? that will allow us to transform our condition and transform the lives of everybody. So when China was ready to enter into the global 
um, system in, in a very serious open up their economy, they entered on the basis of strength because they had transformed the rural area. They had done land redistribution. They had made like all of those investments. So then we are now in a place. And when Africa was going through its crisis, here is the point. China-Africa trade in 2003 was about 10 billion. Can you guess how much it is now? In less than 20 years, that has been transformed. So Chinese leaders have never looked taking Africa as not important. It has always been important to them. Always. Whether it was Hu Jintao, it was like, even when China was going through its own crisis, I remember like for the first time, China was interested in sending peacekeepers to Liberia. The point that I am making here is that there is a historical nature of a relationship between Africa and China. And that historical relationship is not, it's South Africa. Why do you think South Africa has this great relationship with Russia and China? It's precisely because China was involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. It was involved in the liberation struggles on the continent, like in all of those things, right? But somebody will say, but the China of the 70s and the 80s is not the China today. Fair enough. And that, that, is, that is a fair thing to say, right? So we are now in this place where China has grown to become almost on the cusp of becoming a major global power. And so the, its interests in terms of resource needs, in terms of investments, is completely different. But Chinese economy is not based on extracting surplus from elsewhere. They need resources. And that's why the deals that they are going into will be like, we will help you industrialize in this area or build infrastructure in this area, but we need resources. What is wrong with that? What is wrong with African countries also being able to actually extract the resources and put it to their own economic development? What is, what is really wrong with that? Thank you so much. And you kind of laid the foundation for a brilliant segue to my next question. I want to kind of open up the horizons. When we see what I deem to be quite immature conversations from people Thank who you. call themselves Pan-Africanists, from people who call themselves leftists, and, you know, there's almost this infantilization of Africa today, as if Thank to say we, we are unable to pick our own destiny. We are unable to pick those we are going to go into uh, business with and trade with and and things like this so my question then is and I, just to kind of carry on this thought what does a mature conversation sound like when we're speaking about the relationship between africa china and even russia today and and that's and that's the point i don't i'm not somebody who valorizes um agency mm -hmm. and, and and you know this right because uh, the, the whole idea of agency is basically we we try we tend to ignore structural forces mm -hmm. and and then we we tend to like just imagine as if agency like people just act because like no we are all um we exist in constraining um structures but even the the, the person that acts or the agent that act have their subjectivities formed within constraining structures and your subjectivity and how it is formed ultimately informs the kind of actions that you take as an agent. So this is why the whole talk about agency, like the way it's, it's vacuous. But you are right. Africans, and when you listen to African government, if you go to the AU, you talk to the Ethiopian. I mean, and Menes, when he, was, when he was prime minister of Ethiopia, the way he understood, the way he would talk about wanting to like actually reactivate the developmental state in Ethiopia and the partnerships that he was forming with China it's imagined from this. So, but, but this is the point. I, I call this, there is a particular form of misanthropic skepticism when it comes to Africans. We always look at Africans as incapable of taking rational decisions. I mean, the very idea of colonialism is premised on irrationality. They are children, like men, children, or children, men, in the most sexist and racist way you could imagine that we have to go cultivate to bring them into maturity. And that European gaze, that Western gaze, is always being cast on Africa. So like even what is going on in the Sahel region, for instance, like in Niger, in Burkina Faso, people are looking at these military officers as charlatans, as people who do not have any mind. Because in African politics, I mean, did not Bayard tell us that Africa, the politics in Africa is a politics of the belly? We think with our stomachs, mm -hmm. with our physical beings, and not with our heads. Mm -hmm. And so 
So this is what it is, right? Like the question that you are asking is, is really predicated on this. It is predicated on this idea that the Africans cannot be trusted. The Africans are infantile. They are children. They, they can't make informed decisions because they are irrational. So when we engage with China and it's a, a African government comes and actually says, this is the reason there is a structure and, and, and China allows us to be able to negotiate the structure in a different way. People are, oh, no, it's because you are corrupt or it's because you are authoritarian. Or there is always a reason. If you do not toe the Western line and agree with everything that they have told you, then you are always... And even that, I mean, Libya, Gaddafi opened himself up when he actually started mending fences with the West. And that was, towards his, his, his end, it was like, that was my biggest regret. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have opened up myself to these people. So even when they are praising you, like they still will undercut you. The point that I'm making here is that in my own work, I normally talk about evolutionism. Evolutionism is this, a thought process, a temporal structure that constructs the world on the basis of Europe as the end of history and Africa as its primitive foundation. And, uh, and then there is a structural hierarchy in terms of humanity and human progress and human development at which Europe is at the apex and Africa is at the bottom. And so, therefore, when the Africans talk, they are children. They are still primitive. They are irrational. You, Europe is the apex. And that's what you want to be. They are rational. And, and that's constantly, so that evolutionist gaze is constantly cast on African societies. In terms of politics, even the way we, like, state failure, what exactly is embedded in the discourse of state failure? Or, or the African state from neopatrimonialism is to basically say the African state is irrational. That is what is at the heart of neopatrimonialism. The African state is irrational. The leaders do not pursue rational politics of building strengthened states. They just operate through patron-client networks in order to be able to keep themselves in power. So this idea then of the impossibility of the African to make informed judgment when it is not in relation to the West, it's really at the heart of all of this. And, and, and finally, the West has never been able to look at anybody through their own prism, through the, the, the context of their own rationality. They are incapable of doing this. The West is actually capable of viewing any or anybody through the context of their own rationality. The West looks at China by looking at themselves in the mirror. This is what we did. This is what China is going to do. This is what we've done to Africa. And this is what we think China is going to do to Africa. So even when the Africans are saying, no, this is not what it is, they're like, it's because you don't know any better. You don't know any better. You guys are children. You guys are backward. You guys are infantile. You are incapable of understanding. You are irrational. That's why you're going leaving democracy for authoritarianism. Like, it's all of that. I mean, you know this stuff. So it is, there is a, a history and a, a particular archive that exists under the way in which Africa is represented that I refer to after Valentin Mudimbi as the colonial library. The colonial library is always there. The, before we talk about Africa, we always come to Africa through the pricing of the library. Mm -hmm. The library already, people who've never been to Africa know what Africa is. Every year, I start my Africa in the World class or African politics class by asking my students to write what is it that comes to mind when they think of Africa. It will amaze you some of the things that they write. Tribes, wild animals, blah, 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 right? <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for that response once again. And it reminds me of when Congressman Gregory Meeks introduced a bill, I believe in 2021, which was titled yeah. Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa. Thank you. <laughs> and straight away, I thought to myself, I, I was hard pressed to find countering Russian activities in anywhere else. And it, yeah. again, it feeds into what you're saying that again, Africa is unable to choose for itself. Africa is yeah. unable to be become what kind of for its own self-determination. That does lead me to my next question. Given the recent Africa and Russia summit, Putin has recently offered grain to the continent. Mm -hmm. And I saw, you know, the, com the statements from the president of Zimbabwe and several other leaders. 
some have criticized this and said that this is due to Putin's current isolation. He needs Africa's resources. And some have even said this is Russian imperialism on the continent. How would you, <laughs> what do you think of that? Okay, Let, let's, let's do this, right? I mean, what is wrong with Putin giving grain to Africa? Don't we eat? Exactly. I mean, here's the point. <laughs> what is wrong with this? Okay, but here's the point, right? The EU, the same EU that was crying that Russia was bombing and the port of Odessa and Russia had pulled out of the grain deal, and therefore Africa and other third world countries or southern countries were going to starve. Do you remember that? Yep. And now Putin is giving grain to Africa and all of a sudden it becomes a bad thing. One, one minute you are crying because Putin has stopped the grain deal, grain was not going to flow. In actual fact, grain was not flowing to these countries because the EU, to the point that even Poland was upset with the EU and saying, we're not going to allow Ukrainian grain into Poland anymore. So it was the EU that was actually consuming because the issue here is that there is high inflation in the Eurozone. And inflation, normally the marker of inflation is high food prices. So what they were really trying to do is they were gonna they were using Ukrainian grain in order to fight inflation in the Eurozone. Like, what, what are people talking about? But at the same mm-hmm. time, did you notice that the Western sanctions against Russia did not work? You know why? Because Russia has a large industrial and natural resource base. Russia does not need African resources. You could quote me on this one. Russia does not need Africa's resources. Why? Because Russia has significant industrial and natural resource base. Fertilizers. Russia was telling Zimbabwe, we are going to give you how many metric tons of fertilizers. What is wrong with that? If you are talking, these are agrarian societies, and you are saying Russia is, Putin is isolated? Well, oh, I forgot. When we talk of Putin being isolated, we are talking about in the West, and the West is the world, right? The international community is the West. China, India, Brazil, South Africa, Pakistan, everybody is engaging. Like I see Lavrov flying, flying everywhere. Where is, in what universe is Putin isolated? Where? The South African government almost pulled out of the ICC because they were like, no, the way in which you are implementing or bringing indictment against Putin is something that is politicized. India and, and, and China, the two biggest countries in the world, engage in buying, trading with Russia. Where is Putin isolated? I, I think when you, you, you come up with your... Again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying in terms of what is going on in Ukraine. That's a completely different thing, right? But this idea that you think that if you... If I don't talk to you, I, I mean, I used to have friends like that when I was in school, right? They think that if they don't talk to you, then you can't make any other friends because the world evolves around them, right? Mm-hmm. India does not count. The majority of Africans, I mean, you are seeing in Niger, you are seeing in Niger and, and, and in the Sahel, whenever there is a people are holding Putin's image, you think it's just because people are crazy. It's because for the past 30 years, the liberal world order, well, well, the past 30 years, yes, but even from the 1980s, the liberal world order just basically snuffed out life out of so many areas of the world. So you might disagree with what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but at the same time, you understand why these sentiments exist. You understand why people are not listening to blinking anymore when it goes anywhere. Why, if the Americans talk, because in Africa, you just destroyed Libya. They destroyed Libya that awashed the entire Sahel region with weapons that led to Islamists and risings and all over the place. And Gaddafi was telling them that Al-Qaeda and Islamists were involved in the so-called stuff against him. And they were laughing at him. Before you know it, in Mali, to the point that the military officers who have been fighting this were like, we are fed up with the militarization and, and, and the way in which... So now they are taken. Whether they are right or wrong, time will tell. But there is a real reason why people are reacting the way in which they are reacting. So this has nothing to do with Russia. The sentiment in Africa is pro-Russian. And, and, and part of the reason is that the Soviet Union was central to the liberation struggles on the continent. The Soviet Union was central to the liberation of Guinea-Bissau, of Angola, of Mozambique, of South Africa. Like, what are people talking about? And so basically, you, you had the... the 
the, the head of state of Burkina Faso, saying that Russia is family. You might disagree with that, but why do you think he, that's not an ignorant statement that he's making? It is coming from a historical place in which Russia, now you could say Russia needs Africa. Of course, but Russia has never, in fact, at the Russia-African summit, what did Putin say? We regret that we pulled out of Africa after the end of the Cold War. But you also have to understand Russia was going through its own economic crisis. The West was trying to balkanize it, like all of that. Now a resurgent Russia is like, we are now going back to establish our relationship with the African friends. And let me end on this. I think the rise of Russia and China, I mean, a resurgent Russia and the rise of China is important for Africa. Not because of any reason, because it creates a, a pluralistic system in the world that allows us to be able to breathe. And if African leaders are serious, I'm not saying that the rise of China and the resurgence of Russia automatically means that Africa is going to develop. We saw during the Cold War, there were violence, there were coups, there were all of this, right? And we're seeing that also right now. However, the world was not as constraining as it is today. You were not allowed, in the past, we were allowed to experiment with different kinds of, different kinds of state building projects, economic rationalities. Some of them did not turn out that right, but we are allowed to experiment. But since the liberal world order, the end of the Cold War and the liberal world order established a ironclad domination over the world, you only had to listen to what comes, the dictates from Brussels and, and Washington. Like you Thank think you. people are not going to reject that? Absolutely. So the reaction is that like the relation, the reason why people are achieving welcoming Russia it's precisely because there is a historical basis of it. Of course, Vladimir Putin's Russia is not the Soviet Union. But at the same time, what he is doing, I actually wrote about this. I tweeted about this way before. I'm like, we need a new world order. Because for African countries, the past 30 years, actually not at, well, the past 30 years since the 1990s, but especially since structural adjustment came to our countries. So for the past 50 years, we have been under like such a constraining place. You are not allowed to experiment with different, you have to follow the details. And this current moment creates the, the, the opportunity. I'm not saying everything is going to be hockey-dory, but it creates the opportunity. If you are really, really interested in building your state, developing your productive forces, the advent of China and the political space that Russia is creating is an opportunity. It is unfortunate it has to be at the expense of Ukraine, but it's not Russia's fault either if you actually go through the history of what the West has also been trying to do in that, in that region. I actually have a kind of question that arose when you were responding and when you actually, actually what you said about Russia, about the, rush, the inability for sanctions on Russia to work because of its mm -hmm. uh, industrial capabilities and food resources and not needing Africa. And the reason I'm asking about this is because Momadou and I are currently in a political economy reading group. And mm -hmm. uh, we've been reading, we, we've, we started out with... Uh, shout out Bikram. Yeah, shout mm -hmm. out Bikram. We started out with Smith and mm -hmm. we got to a point in Smith where we talked about the building of the building of industry in order to have a, a an advantage uh, within uh, to have an advantage uh, in trade and even even what's his name even Walter Rodney talks about this about exploitation via trade mm -hmm. uh, and the reason I bring this up is because how then do certain countries in the global south who may not have as much of a right so for example for China. China had at their disposal when developing the country a large labor force, and this is helpful in industrialization. How, do, how then do certain countries within the continent who may have smaller land masses, who may be, uh, have certain geographical and climate restrictions, navigate the problem of industrializing in order to get themselves out of, out of unequal trade relationships with other countries? And then additionally, oftentimes uh, I've heard Vijay Prashad advocate mm -hmm. for a non-aligned movement of many, for, of many countries in the global south with uh, mm -hmm. larger blocks. 
Could you talk about the history of the non-aligned movement and what do you think of that as a solution to many countries on that continent? You know, yeah, I hear what you're saying, right? In terms, of, I mean, and I and I think that's also what I'm getting at. That in Africa, what we 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 need to develop our productive forces through industries, through the reform of agriculture, through land reform, and all of this, right? And the the thing that is remarkable about the Chinese story, I'm sorry if I sound like a son of China, but the thing that is that is really really remarkable about the Chinese story. China was able to eliminate extreme poverty in 70 years, or let's say in 40 years. What it took the West to achieve in hundreds of years, and that included the enslavement of my kind, the destruction of Africa, the genocide, anti-indigenous genocide in the Americas, continent grabbing, the drain of resources, like, like all of this. China has not done that because its structural foundation is a little different. And one thing it did was land reform. So when you give land, like basically the land became kind of like, I think it was common holding and then you add rent to different families and individuals and stuff, right? And then you develop the productive capacity on the basis of that. So the first thing is that in China, you are not really going to get hungry necessarily because of one, the agricultural revolution, and two, the, the, the land reform, right? Whereas in, in some places, like for instance, if you take the case of India, India has developed, but India still has like some of the, 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 the highest form of inequality and poverty. China has eliminated that. India and China are comparable when it comes to size. And yet the Chinese case continues to illuminate, give us examples. Now, the reason why I am starting there is to say that South-South cooperation should not be pushed to the side. International solidarity should not be pushed to the side. So in the case of Africa, the Pan-African dream should not something, it's not something that we should forget, right? Because Africa was so badly balkanized. What does like a state like Gambia, I'm sorry, Mamadou, but Gambia does not have any reason existing as a state. <laughs> like, like, no, really. I, no, this is not a disrespect to, to, to my Gambian compatriots and friends, right? But the, it, the British just basically caught 40 kilometers mm-hmm. north, 40 kilometers south, and 200 kilometers east to west. That is the Gambia. Why? Because they wanted fresh water, they wanted to control that, and that becomes a country. And a civilization around that area, people are balkanized in a certain way. What is the, even if Gambia is to be industrialized, what will be the economics of, of scale that you, it will be able to, to leverage without really integrating into Senegal or the greater Senegambia region? So, so one, the Pan-African dream should still be alive. Two, the international solidarity, and this is what, this is what will take me to both the Third World Movement, the project of Bandung, and non-alignment. So during the Cold War, basically, countries that were emerging from, 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 from colonialism, from colonial imposition, basically were like, well, there is this East and West. Nkrumah was like, we're well, lo- looking neither East nor West. We are looking forward. So yes, international so- socialism had a radical project of remaking the world. And so there was a lot of relationship between international socialism and the Eastern Bloc and that of the, the Third World Movement based on the Bandung Project, which basically was to reimagine the world through a solidarity movement, Third World Solidarity Movement, that ideologically will be committed to transforming the structural imbalances that were put in place by colonialism. And this then basically meant that there had to be putting in place a new structure of the global economy and putting in place a new structure of the way in which global politics and global power is distributed and all of this, right? But of course, the Americans and the West went after this. And a second leg of this also was non-alignment. Those of us who are coming from colonial imposition should not be playing this ideological game. We should focus on a solidarity politics in which we are either neither East nor West, but where we, are, we actually, through solidarity, reform international system in the way that it is not counterproductive to us. So from the Bandung in 55 to the tricontinental and non-alignment 
These are actually three major ideological movements in the global south. And, and I mean, um, non-aligned Tito of, of Yugoslavia was very big within the non-aligned non movement, right? But it, it, it's basically the tricontinental Bandung, which is the Africa-Asia um, meeting, and on all of that and the non-alignment, these were like basically ideological movements within the South and the world that were looking for a new ethical politics that would be based on global solidarity, a decolonial, if you want to call it, or a decolonizationist praxis that will fundamentally read for what Adam, uh, Adam um, um, Getashu recently called wall-making. So the idea, even Pan-Africanism was about wall-making, to remake the world in the way that the violence of colonialism and its exploitative systems are pushed to the side. And, and one of the arguments that Arigi makes in Adam Smith in Beijing is actually that China may be the new incarn incarnation or the, the new incarnation of that Third World Movement. Because what happened was that during the Third World Movement, during this period, there was ideological coherence and ideological prowess of these groups, but the economic base was missing. It was lacking. With the advent of China, it has provided a new economic foundation, or it has the possibility of creating a new economic foundation. And if we bring in the BRICS, then that will allow for a new economic architecture in which the global politics, the ideological politics of non-alignment, and especially the third world project could be realized. So this is why some people like Fan Tuchero, for instance, sees the advent of China and its role in Africa, he welcomes it. There are people who welcome who welcome that because you know, like it is creating a new structural foundation that will allow for the, a return to the Third Wallace project, the project of the tricontinental, in a way that it was never capable of taking up because of the economic problems that they have. But with the economic might of China, this could create an opportunity for rethinking the world. So non-alignment, given that I am coming from a, a, a so-called Afro-Marxist and Afro-radical perspective, I will support the, the, the Pan-African solidarity because I think it is absolutely necessary. And, right, and, and so I will consider myself an incremized in that sense. The rise of China, I think, presents an opportunity. There are dangers, there are risks. But there is also, there is like fundamental opportunity that will allow us. So I wouldn't call it no alignment necessarily because China is now imagined as a global power. I think we have to align with China in some sense. We can't just dismiss um, the West because China's presence in Africa is re re redefining the politics of global political economy and global power. So maybe non-alignment in the... In, but what I am really hoping for is the tricontinental and the third world movement. And that is being realized to some extent in, in BRICS, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that response. It kind of reminds me of a conversation I had with Radhika Desai when we spoke about multipolarity. And she also said that multipolarity in itself does not mean it is inherent good, but it allows for opportunity for change exactly. and transformation. And I think yeah. that's what is really important. I have about three final questions. The first one is, you've mentioned Libya quite a lot. So from a Pan-Africanist perspective, how should we view the Russia and Ukraine conflict, and how is Libya relevant here? Huh, this is this is um, you know I we we just had this um, the conference uh, yeah we had this this yeah this is this webinar, webinar. And we are talking about this and and what I was saying is that for you to be able to understand what is happening in Ukraine, Libya should be a key to understanding that right. What do I mean by this? The West, especially the United States, has always dreamt of global domination. This, this, it's, it's in their records and all of that. And the, the Cold War stopped them, right? And so in the Cold War, like initially, what's his name? Roosevelt was thinking of one world, one worldism. The Cold War prevented that. And then we went to three worldism under Truman and development as the way in which the U.S. will reimagine the world in its own image. But it's basically, and then there was a very, the racking off of anti-communist violence. In Indonesia, it is known that 
estimated that between 500,000 and 3 million people were killed in the communist program in Indonesia. The bombing of Laos, of the destruction of Vietnam, like these were all part of the U.S. and the, the support for UNITA in, in Angola and RENAMO in, in Mozambique. These are all examples of the way in which the Americans were so against communism because they wanted to establish. And then, fortunately for them, in the 1990s or 89, they saw, 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. The Cold War ended in 89. 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. And by 1992, we started going to the construction of the liberal world order. Actually, that liberal world order, it was, I think it was in 1989-90, or 91, sorry, 92, when the Americans under George Bush, the, 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 the father, went into Somalia. After the first Gulf War, he declared a new world order. Right, that new world order, of course, took off with democracy promotion initially, the construction of liberal peace, and after 19, after 2001, with, with his son and 9-11, then the American empire, like, really revealed, bold-faced, what it had always been about. It constructed a liberal system based on neoliberalism as the economic, dominant economic ideology of, of, of political economy, in which the Americans were at the head, and then constructed a militaristic and power structure that was based on the U.S. military projecting power all over the world. It, it was after 9-11, the Americans were so intolerant of anything that they were shutting down, overthrowing governments, police action. Like, we know, you know the story. And so then what happened? 2003, so they went to Iraq, destroyed Iraq. But it started in 99, actually, right? They bombed Yugoslavia because Yugoslavia was not playing game. And there were some issues in terms of like Bosnia and the problems and how Milosevic as, as a sub-nationalist was putting in place like this very violent politics. And so they bombed Yugoslavia or Serbia. But bombing Serbia, what happened? They bombed this Chinese embassy. Why? Because they were like, this was the period just to say, don't mess with us. They just did that deliberately. They said it was a mistake, but you know, it was not. They bombed the Chinese embassy and then in 2003, they went to Libya, uh, sorry, uh, Iraq. So what you are looking here is a violent, imperialistic, militaristic system that is being constructed on top of an economic system that is based on austerity and neoliberal overreach. So on the economic hand, so you are being suffocated through neoliberal economic arrangement. And on the political hand, there is basically a violent militaristic system that has been constructed in this world. So, and then the Arab Springs started happening. Don't forget the Arab Spring happened after 2008, when neoliberalism had drawn itself to a crisis in which there was a global financial crisis. And then the Arab dictators in North Africa and the Middle East that were actually in bed with the Americans were the ones that were targeted. I remember exactly when stone-throwing kids started fighting the police on the streets of Tunisia. And the way, even during that week, before um, Ben Ali resigned, was forced into exile, the French foreign minister was vacationing in Carthage. And then what happened in Tunisia, then it spread to Egypt. There is panic in Washington and in the West because what is happening, we are now seeing the unraveling of Western hegemony in North Africa and the Middle East. So what happened? Libya is instigated. And Libya then became the opportunity to basically rearticulate Western hegemony. Because you could go after Gaddafi without necessarily damaging your interest. You actually could say, Gaddafi is not your bastard. Ben Ali, Hosni Mubarak, is. But with Gaddafi, you could go after him and say, we are promoting democracy. And that was exactly, and there was always been, I remember I was like a little kid when Reagan bombed Benghazi and Tripoli. So, so the Americans have always wanted to get rid of Gaddafi. And then the Arab Spring presented an opportunity and they went after him. They went after him in the most brutal way, manipulated the United Nations, made promises to Russia and China and say, if you do not oppose this, we are just going to protect civilians. And then what happened? Russia and China said, okay, we will abstain. Then they changed and bombed Libya to the Stone Age, killed Gaddafi. And if you remember, Putin was not president at this time. He was prime minister. 
And there was a speech where he was in Norway, where he's basically going after saying, why are they bombing his palaces? They did have a fair trial, and now they are saying, that, like he was, right? And after that, if you remember, after Libya and the crisis that it created in the Sahel, it is now that they are realizing, even Obama said that it was a mistake, what they did in Libya, okay? And then they decided to go after, then they went for Ukraine. Putin had won them in 2007. There was a coup in Ukraine. Whether you like this or not, there are actually videos, audios of Victor Nuland saying FDEU, deciding, picking who should be in a post-Yanukovych government. And if you're after Maidan 2014 in Ukraine, and don't get me wrong, Ukraine is a divided society. And there were really people who did not want Yanukovych. But there were also people in, in the, in the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine that was the person that they vote for. If you look at the election results, it is there. They overthrew that government. And then, if you notice, after 2014, Russia went into Syria in 2015. Because, basically, Russia was like, we got to draw the line. And bear in mind, there was a change in government in Moscow and in China. Hu Jintao had been replaced by Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping, the people say since Mao, he's the most powerful Chinese president in history. And he basically was like, no, this has to stop. And, and, and Putin then had become president of Russia again, went to, 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 to this place. And so the issue, and they have been trying to get the West collectively to re, re, rethink the collective security of Europe and say, NATO is coming close to us. You got to stop this. And, right, and, but they, they don't, like, actually the Russian framework, if you, you, if you follow it, and it's not really that radical. It's just saying, let's rethink security in which one man's security is not going to be at the detriment of the other. But the Americans have got into this place where they were like, you don't get to tell people. And this whole question of agency, the Ukrainians want to join NATO, you can't. And Russia is like, this is a red line for us. And then they went to it. But the point that I'm making is that in this like um, stylized um, rendition of this very long history, mm-hmm. is to say that Libya... Was a was was a, was was an opening call. It becomes a sign of the moment of our, our present, well before the Russian action in Ukraine, because what he was telling China and Russia is that you guys do not matter. We are in charge, and we could destroy this country. And then they started seeing themselves. They started seeing themselves. It's like, oh, so you're now gone after Libya, and you've gone after Ukraine. That we said it's a red line for us. Okay. We are not going to let government in Syria fall because then this domino is going to continue. And one final thing that I want to say, this is not conspiracy theory. General Wesley Clark, who at one point in his life was the NATO commander in Europe, there is a video of him on YouTube, you could look, where he is saying when Bush and Rumsfeld and all of these guys were in power, they had a plan of taking seven countries in the Middle East in five years. From Iraq, they were going to end up with Iran. Syria, all of them were in that domino. So when the thing happened in, in, in Syria, I wasn't surprised. And it was only the Russian intervention. But what Russia was really doing, drawing a line that this had come to an end. And in Ukraine, they actually now were able to step over another line and say, okay, if we are going to have a war, then let's have a war. So the point here is that Libya is important. Libya is not a backwater because that was really the moment. Not Iraq. It was Libya that told the Chinese and the Russians that these guys could not be trusted. Thank you so much. And my final question, because I don't, I think it would be a missed opportunity if I didn't ask. We are seeing on the continent right now, you know, with the coups in Burkina Faso, Guinea, Mali, and now Niger, we're seeing those actors, the EFF rising in South Africa. Uh, many young Pan-Africanists in the diaspora, specifically in North America, very excited for what they see. And, you know, in the age of social media, things are very sensationalized. But I think we always have to have a sober analysis, but also ask those who have much more experience with the history of the continent like yourself. So just some thoughts of what's happening, what's taking place and what the approach should be in our assessment. Um, I think for now, I think I'm also excited, but cautiously. Mm -hmm. Because I was in high school when the military took over in Sierra Leone after a very long time. There was euphoria, but Mm -hmm. the military could only go so far. Like there is also a limitation to Mm -hmm. the military as an institution. But 
And we have to, I mean, before I even go into this, I have to go back to the Libya question. Libya is also central to understanding what is happening in, in the Sahel region. Because after Libya was destroyed, those Islamists and the guns that were shipped into Libya were basically became awash in that region. And before you know it, Mali was destabilized, Burkina Faso was destabilized, and that entire region was from Chad to northern Nigeria, Boko Haram, Niger, all of them were destabilized. But just imagine what happened. The French went to Mali, to Burkina Faso, to Niger. But actually, instead of going to Mali previously, the first place that they went to Niger. Why? Because of the uranium mines, right? And so, on the one hand, there has been a frustration on the part of the military. And this situation is very similar to what happened in Sierra Leone in 92. A civil war started. There were governments in, in the capital that the military, young military officers who were fighting the, the war in, against the insurgents felt that these guys are not serious. Why are we even fighting for them? So that frustration, I understand. And it's that frustration that led to, to the coups in, in, in Mali and, and, and Burkina Faso and now Niger, right? Okay. So, but what happened as a result of this destabilization, the French militarized the region. The Americans, of course, have been militarizing the region from Djibouti to, to all of these places, right? Drone and bases and all of this. And this was also wherever China is investing economically in all of these places, the Americans are circling them with military bases. You have to bear that in mind. So on the one hand, there is a political class that is in, in bed with, with the imperialist forces with France, which is militarizing the country. I'm sorry, the continent and in this region. On the other hand, there is a security problem of Islamists and the French and all of these guys. What basically they are doing is a policy of containment. So these young officers that are fighting these wars are fed up both with the political class and their com complicity in what is going on, and also the militarization of their societies that is not leading to anything but just increasing violence. So they are taking over. And the language that they are using, the rhetoric that they are using, it sounds very interesting to the heirs, like the rhetoric of liberation and freedom. Like, for instance, Tuari in Burkina Faso is talking about a slave that does not fight for its freedom, does not deserve pity, right? And, and so all of this is happening. They are talking now thinking of a federated state, Mali and, and Burkina Faso, but also Guinea-Conakry and now Niger. But I want us to be a little cautious. We should not let our excitement and the things that we want to see to get ahead of us. There has to be concrete steps and signs that we will see in these governments in terms of the things that they are doing in terms of are they really serious about this integration that they are talking about? Are they serious about transforming the lives of their societies? How are they matching it? And, and this brings me to the, to the coup in Niger. Why is it that it is in Niger that we want to intervene? Because one in four bulbs in Paris, I'm sorry, in France, is basically, what do you want to say? Lit by Nigerian um, uranium. The, the uranium mines that they have there, this is not like the best, sorry, the, the largest supply of uranium in the world. But for France, it is a major part of the, their supply. And so even when Islamist problems started in West Africa, it was the uranium mines that they were struggling to secure. Now the coup has happened and they are talking about intervening. And you know what? In 2011, the French also actually intervened in Ivory Coast to get rid of Robert Bagu, Lauren Bagu, right? And, in, and put Watara. Maybe Watara won the election. Maybe the election was rigged. And, or, or why are you militarizing a political dis, dis, dispute? This is what France has been doing. France has been militarizing. They had become... And also one final thing in this. Macron is the most arrogant French president that I have come across, Western leader in recent times. Maybe his heart is in a good place. But the way he talks, the condescending way he talks to Africans and about Africans, the way he addressed African leaders, there is something. So all of this then is leading to a particular form of revolt. But I just will have to say, let's be cautious. Let's not get too excited about this and wait to actually see. Is Taurari a, a reincarnation of Sankara? Or as Karl Marx warned us, historical personalities appear um, twice. 
first as twice. a tragedy, mm-hmm. next as a fast. So is this the fast that we are witnessing? I don't know. But we have to we have to be careful with this. We can't just at the same time we can't just dismiss them. Again, like I was talking about the the presence of I mean the the, the multipolar world order that is being created. There are opportunities, but there are also dangers. And so I am excited about the opportunities, but I am very cautious about the dangers that exist. And one final thing that I want to say is in relation to, to Guinea. I don't know if um, Dumbuya, I could trust him because he was in the French military. His wife is still in the French military, the French legions. So has he rebelled against that? Or was he a plant because Alpha Conde, for all his failings, it was because China and Guinea had made those um, um, deals about um, iron ore mines and all of this. I don't know. These are questions that we ask. So Dumbuya, I am looking at him. He's the one of the three of them. The guy in Niger, we don't really know that much about him, but we are watching the situation as it is unfolding. But Dumbuya, I don't, I don't really trust. Goita seemed to be like really serious and committed, and so is Tarawa. But again... We have to be cautious. There are opportunities, but there are also dangers. Thank you so much. This has been a super informative discussion, actually a masterclass. Until next time, people.